Uh, this morning we're in Genesis 49. Almost done. Oh yeah, children's church. See, I'm out of habit already. This is uh, essentially part two of what we started last week. Last week was the blessing of uh, Joseph and his sons. And actually, Joseph's going to get another blessing today. He just gets it all. This doesn't seem right, does it? But <clears throat> okay, we're only going to be reading through verse 27 this morning. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, prominent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestiture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw what a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper in the path, that bites the horse's heels, so that its riders fall backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His breeches, sorry, his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him shot at him and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, for there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. Most gracious God, our Heavenly Father, in whom alone dwells all the fullness of light and wisdom, illumine our minds, we ask you, by your Holy Spirit, in the true understanding of your word. Give us grace that we may receive it with reverence and humility unfeigned. May it lead us to put our whole trust in you alone and to serve and to honor you, that we may glorify your holy name and edify our neighbors by good example. And since it has pleased you to number us among your people, help us to give you love and homage that we, that we owe as children to our Father, as servants to our Lord. And we ask this for the sake of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're older like me, that sounds odd to say, isn't it? Do you remember where you were between September 11th and 13th in 1988? Nobody? I don't know where I was the whole time. Oh, Dick knows. Where were you, Dick? That didn't sound like a whole lot of fun. All right. Well, I know where I was part of that time. I was down in the base, the finished basement of our parents' house, listening to Milan Lefevre's Crack the Sky, wondering if Jesus was really going to come back that day. Because there was a guy named Edgar who wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988, and he said that Jesus was going to return between September 11th and September 13th, and I didn't believe him, but I wanted it to be true. Didn't happen. Still waiting. Jacob. There were things about that Jacob wanted. And he was waiting all of his life. 147 years he had waited for these things to happen, and they hadn't happened yet. And it's going to be reflected as he, he places these blessings upon these people, his sons. So let us keep that in mind this morning. The big idea is rather simple. It is that Jesus is our only hope in light of sin. There's a lot of sin in this passage, but there's a lot of hope in the midst of this passage as well. They are both present. To orient us to the rest of this, we have to realize that God speaks of the future in light of the covenant. Jacob has gathered his children. He knows it's time for him to die. And it's not just Joseph and his sons. This time it is all of his sons. All 12 of them are to be gathered together. He calls them for a public blessing upon them and the tribes which shall bear their name. It's sort of like in our house, story time. Gather all the kids. It's time for some news. Okay, He's gathering them all. 
Jacob says he is going to tell them what shall happen to you. What he's saying is that this is not going to be accidental. The Hebrew has the idea that these things are intentional. This is not just what's going to accidentally befall you, but this is the plan of God. This is what he is going to do for each of you and the people who are your descendants. And so God is the one who ultimately who was addressing Israel through Jacob. This is a prophecy. And in light of the, the, the work of prophecy, it's usually in light of the covenant where... Sometimes it's a lawsuit, but it's looking at the circumstances through the lens of the, of the covenant and applying the promises and the curses of the covenant based on whether one walks in the covenant or not. Genesis 18, verse 9, says this about Abraham. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And so in that text, there's an element of conditionality concerning the promise that was given to Abraham. There's a conditionality that rests upon whether or not his people, his sons, walk in the way that he has, they have been instructed by Abraham, whether they walk by doing righteousness and justice or not. And so as we think about what's going on here in Genesis 49, what befalls the tribes is a reflection of whether or not that particular son had walked in righteousness and justice or had strayed from the path. You see, their character, or their lack of character, shaped their tribe for generations. Their sin, or righteousness, didn't just affect their personal lives, their individual lives, but it was going to roll on down through the generations. We tend not to think about that, do we? We tend to think about our sin as just being our sin, and not really affecting that many people. Oh, well, you know, it might affect my wife and it might affect my kids, but we don't think about the generations to come. And Israel needed to recognize that not only had their lives, their condition been shaped by the generations before, but they were going to shape the generations to come as well, for good or for ill. And we need to recognize that our sin just doesn't stick to us. Or our righteousness doesn't just stick to us, but we affect multiple generations by our actions. It spreads down. How you live matters. You will affect your family and this congregation for generations to come by what you do and don't do. This is also poetry. You'll notice it, as some of my professors said, by all the white space in the text. Most of your Bible should have lots of white space in there. Okay? If you don't, sorry. Okay? But it's poetry. And for Hebrew poetry, that means there's lots of parallelism. You know, words that, that kind of are in one, one part of the sentence and then 
Similar words to explain it and amplify it are in another part of the sentence. Lots of parallelism going on. There's lots of repetition that goes on. There's lots of imagery that happens. And so, so part of that imagery, we have lots of animals. We have lions. We have cubs. We have adult lions. We have lionesses. All in this thing. We have snakes, vipers, horses, donkeys, deer and fawn, and ravenous wolves. Sometimes they're referring to the literal animals, but sometimes they're using the animal to describe the character of a person. You know, like it says, Benjamin is like a ravenous wolf. He's not literally a lycanthrope. He's not a werewolf. (laughs) But he's like a wolf. He's always hungry, and he's ready to tear something apart. He's not like the well-fed wolves in the zoos that you see. Okay? Not only do we have animals, but we have agriculture. We have vines, grapes, wine, milk, fruitful bows. 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 So we have lots of imagery that's going on in this text. We also see the structure of the text because he starts with the sons of Leah. Then he moves to the the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the concubines. And then he ends with the sons of Rachel. And so there's a progression that kind of goes through. He's, in other words, he's not taking these children chronologically in order. He is doing them, he is grouping them by order of their, ma- their mothers. But what the interesting thing we find is that 40% of this text is taken up by three of the sons. Reuben, Judah, Joseph. There's 12 boys but almost 50% of it is taken up by three of them. These three are prominent for various reasons that we will get to in a little while. But I want us to remember that God shapes future generations of our families and church by our conduct, by our faithfulness or lack thereof. So that moves us into the second point of this, the hard part of it. That grave sins often have grave earthly consequences. And I want to just, I want to draw that distinction here because I'm not saying that these people by their sins were cast out of God's presence. But what I am saying is that their earthly futures were shaped by their sin. They had earthly consequences for their actions. I'm not talking about their eternal consequences. For even as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talking about those who are building their, their lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ, he recognizes that you may build your life with the wrong stuff. And then when you get to the end, what will happen is it will burn down. But he doesn't say you're lost. You are saved, but as one through the fire. Meaning, you've got nothing to show for it, but there are some who by their lifestyle build with the right things upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And while some of it may burn away, most of it stays. And Paul says they receive a reward for that. So each of us is sort of in that that, that situation. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. But there's also this recognition that we can build our lives on the wrong stuff. And we have to be wise. 
that we're building on the foundation of Christ with good material, so to speak, that we're walking in faithfulness so that when we get to the end, we're not like the guy who's just had it all burn away and there's nothing left. You're in. But there's no well done, good and faithful servant. Again, all of us are there by grace. This is not any kind of work salvation. But we have to reckon with what Paul says in that passage. And so we see that some of these sons of Israel have faltered. They have stumbled. And the first one was Reuben. One of the three, the three that takes up the most space. Reuben was the one who should have been the greatest. He was the firstborn. He was the one upon whom all the hopes were initially placed. He was the one, as it says about Reuben. My might, the first fruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. He should have been the one. The most important one, the most insignificant one, the one who gets the most blessing. But he says, you are as unstable as water. Ever try to build something on water? It's really not going to work. Unless you get a boat. A boat you can build on water. Anything else, forget it. You gotta like sink things down. It's, it's unstable working with water. You can't build on it. He, and so Joseph, I mean, uh, Jacob can't build his house, so to speak, on Reuben. Not only that, but when you think about water and how destructive water can be when it is let loose, I think of the great flood of 2011, right? In our own building. Kitchen destroyed by water. And so there's this also this, this dangerousness of water. They, remember, they lived in the desert for most of their lives. They know what happens when it rains and all that water goes rushing through a wadi. And what was once safe to walk in, you can't walk in anymore. Kill you. Reuben, you're unstable and you're dangerous. You're destructive. And he ties it specifically with one event that he defiled his father by incest. He dishonored the marriage bed and forfeited his rights. And it's interesting that when you look at 1 Corinthians, what was the major sin that Paul was shocked that they hadn't disciplined? The same sin. They never listened to what happened to Reuben, who by that sin forfeited the rights of the firstborn. He flushed his future, so to speak. Hebrews 13 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so essentially, you can apply that in saying that here God is judging in an earthly sense immoral Reuben. Because he defiled his father's marriage bed. You even sense the pain in the way that it is written here. Because you went up to your father's bed, and then you defiled it. And then it's almost like an aside. He went up to my couch. Still, years later, Jacob feels the pain 
of His Son's deed. Then it moves on to Simeon and Levi, the next two in line, who were supposed to be, you know, all right, if it's not Reuben, then it's going to be either Simeon or Levi to take up the, the, you know, the rights of the firstborn, that kind of thing. But he laments because these two sons were guilty of murder, of cruelty, and profaning the sign of the covenant. Ephesians 4 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Simeon and Levi are examples of the negative example of that verse. They had a right to be angry. Their, their anger initially was righteous because their sister had been defiled by Shechem. She had been abused and taken advantage of, and they had a right to be angry. And yet Shechem tried to make it right. And so they were angry, but in their anger, they sinned. First, they did not, they let the sun go down in their anger. They held on to it. They nursed it. They began to think about what they could do to Shechem. They gave their lives, they gave the devil a foothold into their lives. And then notice how wicked they were in that they used the sign of the covenant, circumcision, as a guise to enable them to slay all the men of Shechem. Murderous anger. That's what they were guilty of. And then this also notes the cruelty of, of them hamstringing the oxen. They didn't take the oxen for their own, nor did they ki- they didn't kill the oxen either. They hamstrung it. So it was no good to anybody, but it was still alive. The cruelty of these two men on display. And so they are divided. In the first instance, you know, there's a parallelism that goes that goes in there. First they are divided, you know, Jacob can't trust these two to be next to each other. Okay? Because when they're hanging out, bad things happen. And so he separates them within the tribes. They're not going to be next to each other within the tribes. So that the, the power of their anger and their cruelty are not joined together. You know, wonder twin powers activate. Form of malicious brothers. Okay? He's preventing this from happening. Not only that, but it says, you will be scattered. The word that we find at the Tower of Babel, when God scattered the nation, He puts them, it's the same word, and so there's an act of judgment that's going on, and it is Levi who's going to be scattered. Not only is he separated from his brother, not only is he divided from his brother, but he's going to be scattered within the rest of the tribes. He's not going to have an inheritance of his own. Simeon would eventually be, he he was like surrounded by Judah and eventually got gobbled up by Judah. Let's go back a second to what I said in the first part of this, of how faithfulness or unfaithfulness can define a a tribe, a, a people, a family for generations to come. Okay, so initially this is really bad for Levi. But then there's righteous 
Phineas, for whom Asher was almost named, who, when the Israelites were, were sinning greatly against God, was an instrument of God's justice and stopped the plague that was striking God's people. And now this separation is redeemed by God so that the people of Levi are now spread throughout the nation to instruct them and to care for the temple. What started off as a bad thing was changed, largely because of one guy, Phineas. Not only is it these two brothers, but I also want to draw attention to Issachar. There's almost nothing about him. There's, there's two lines in this poem about him. But he's strong like a donkey. But he's lazy. He lays down between the sheepfolds. He would become under bondage, even in the promised land. And he didn't care. Because he was lazy. Brothers and sisters, don't we struggle with these three sins? Lust, anger, sloth. Not to the degree I think of these men, but we wrestle with them. We struggle with them. And we have to face the reality that they can set us back spiritually. Some time ago, uh, last fall, I, I told you that I was diagnosed with uh, vitamin B12 deficiency. That's not the only thing I was diagnosed with. Some of you know, some of you don't know. All of you are going to know now. I was also diagnosed with low T or low testosterone. It's such a fun little thing. I was, in a, I was walking in a brain cloud the rest of my life. Okay, But part of the treatment, the side effects are lust and anger. <laughs> you know, you see, I thought I was making progress in my spiritual life. <laughs> And now I realize I was just getting old. <laughs> that this, that this, you know, progress, the sanctification was really just my hormones were out of whack. Wasn't that exciting? It's like, I don't want to be 14 again. <laughs> okay? Have to put these things to death. Okay? We all struggle with these things. And sometimes what, what looks like progress really isn't progress. It's just waiting. There's, uh, for those of you who are baseball fans, I can't remember the pitcher, but there was this one guy who lost control of the ball. They call it the yips. And it's basically, it's, the, the theory is if you're a baseball, if you're a pitcher, once you have it, you never lose it. It's like in, it might go in remission for a while, but it will reemerge. Okay? Your sin, may, particular sins, may go in remission for a while, but they'll eventually try to peak up again. They will try to re-emerge. They set us back. They set back our families. They set back our churches. It's recognized when we see divorce, when we see church splits, when we see churches and families stagnate. That's a sign of sloth, by the way, the stagnation. 
whether it's in a family because they're not they're not pursuing sanctification because of laziness, all of these things. If you if you struggle with procrastination, I've got a a great sermon and the works of Jonathan Edwards for you on procrastination. Actually, you might not want to read it. <laughs> it might be very convicting, you know. But these are real things that affect normal people, and they can they can severely limit our spiritual growth if we're not careful. But I have good news in the midst of this. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, which we already read this morning, that last portion of it, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so there is pardon... There's also God at work to sanctify you, to change you, to get rid of these sins which bother you, which plague you, and therefore plague your families and the church. Christ can purify. He does justify. We are sanctified by the Spirit. And there's a sense in which, Amy and I joke, moveon.org. You know, we take advantage of that political action group or whatever it is. You know, there's times you just need to move on. We need to move on from our sin. Okay? We need to say, that, that, you know, enough. I need to make progress. I need to put them to death in the power of the Spirit. And I don't have time to go into that. When we get to Colossians, there's going to be a whole lot of that. Next month, Colossians. Good stuff. Okay? There's a lot about sanctification when we get to Colossians. And so in God's economy, our sin can have earthly consequences, very destructive earthly consequences. Third part is that faith waits for the source of all grace. There's a lot of hope that is held out in this prophecy by Jacob. Even as Jacob wanted to see the fulfillment, he's like me laying down in the basement with the music cranked, crack the sky. He's like, I know you've given these promises. When are they going to come true? The first one is Judah. Judah rises to prominence among the tribes. He's, he's not given the rights of the firstborn, but he becomes the most important member of the tribe, of the family. He is victorious and he's praiseworthy. He's like the lion, the one that everyone fears, the one that no other predator but man can tame. That's Judah, strong and fierce and valiant. Judah is given the scepter, the right to rule over Israel. Now again, see, one of my professors, Dr. Richard Pratt, called this Intervening historical contingencies. Okay. One of the intervening historical contingencies that happened was the sin of the kings of Judah, which meant that they went into exile at the hands of Babylon. Okay. And so there's a sense in which the scepter did pass and that, it, and that they, they were not ruling Israel. That's because no one, no Israelite was ruling Israel for a long time. There's this phrase that here is tribute when tribute comes, which uh, the King James and old other versions will say when Shiloh comes. No one really understands what exactly is meant by Shiloh. But everyone agrees that it's about the Messiah. 
that, that Judah will, the scepter will remain with Judah until the Messiah arises and comes. And he's going to keep it forever. And so here in the midst of this is this promise, this hope that Jesus is the promised Messiah that comes through Judah. But he's not only going to reign over Israel, even in this text, but we see that he's ruling over the nations too. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, not just the people of Israel, but the peoples. It's not fully explained here, but you're going to see it developing in the prophets. that The nations are going to come under the king of David, Jesus. They're going to be gathered under him. They shall obey him. Then we read a little bit further down to Dan. It's kind of interesting. Dan is one who is crying out for justice among the people. He's He's mentioned in a, in a negative way, in a sense, of being a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so the rider falls backwards. Not a good thing. He's crippling other people, bringing them to justice, in a sense. But there is this, this suddenly Jacob exclaims, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And I, and I look at this and I'm kind of, what's going on here? And I can't escape with the, with the mention of the snakes and the heels. I can't help but think of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your, the serpent's, head, and you shall bruise his heel. Jacob is longing, I think, for the promised seed who would come to destroy Satan. Because Satan is the one who is behind all of the injustice that Dan wants to see undone. Jacob is waiting for Jesus. The seed who will bring, a, who will bring justice to the afflicted because he destroys the work of Satan. And so, you know, we see things like Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You who belong to Messiah. Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And so Jesus comes fully man, fully God, to fully destroy the works of the evil one and defeat him, to crush him under his feet. And so we live in the in-between. The, the, wor- the work is all based upon the work on, on the cross because there he stripped his enemies of their power, including Satan, and yet Satan still is able to run around a little bit right now. This gives a nice plug for our Revelation Sunday School series. We'll talk about that. Okay? But when he returns, it is over for the evil one. And so we live between those two times where we now have the forgiveness of sin, but we still are plagued by sin. And we long for the day in which we no longer are tempted from within or without. 
we still look to the promised seed, Jesus, for this. But what we see taking place in this, this is a big shift in the progress of the story of redemption because it first was given to Adam back in Genesis 3.15. And then we see that it is, it is given, that the line is going to come through Seth. It's not going to come through Cain, and it can't come through Abel because Abel's dead. So it's going to come through Seth. And then we see that it's going to come through the line of Noah. And then we see through the promise in, uh, in the covenant in uh, Genesis 12 that it's going to come through Abraham. And then which son of Abraham is it going to be? It's going to be Isaac, not Ishmael, and not all the ones that came after Isaac. And which, which son of Isaac is it going to come through? No, not Esau. It's going to come through Jacob. And which son of Jacob is it going to come through? Judah. And so God continued, progressively reveals how He's going to fulfill this. And so this is a, this text is actually a major portion of the history of redemption that we understand where is Messiah going to come from? Judah. The tribe of Judah. And so we await His return to crush Satan under our feet and to cast him into the pit of fire. Lastly, there's Joseph. Joseph is given great fruitfulness because he was unmoved when harassed and attacked. And if you're the other 11, well, 10 of the 11 brothers listening to that, you probably felt something go, ow, because you were one of the guys who attacked and harassed him. And yet, he was faithful. He stood firm. He was not crushed by the oppression of his brothers. But then the question then comes up, how is it that he stood? Joseph, well, sorry, Jacob says how. His bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. He was strengthened by God. But notice that. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. This mighty one of Jacob is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The God of his father, Jacob, helped him and would continue to help him. It says, by the Almighty, El Shaddai, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep. Earthly and eternal blessings uh, Joseph receives from God. In other words, it points us again to Jesus. Oh, God was going to shepherd Israel in the wilderness. But it points us more completely to Jesus, who is the promised shepherd to sustain God's people. The, The mighty one who guarded Joseph is the mighty one who guards us still. My people are in my hand and no one can take them out, he says. The good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, he is the one who protects them because he took up his life again. And we need protection from the enemies of the gospel. This morning I prayed for this 14-year-old girl, Rimsha Mashi, who I don't know if any of you have ever heard of this girl. 
because I was I used to be in the Associate Reform Presbyterian Church. I'm on their Facebook, uh, you know, site, and they're talking about her because she's affiliated with the ARPs in Pakistan. And this 14-year-old girl was falsely accused of burning the Koran. What ended up coming out eventually in the evidence is that one of the Inmans had burned it and placed it there and falsely accused her. This 14-year-old girl was imprisoned for believing in Jesus. And yet Jesus has protected her and still will. We don't know the way in which he will be protecting her in the future. But we know from the, the book of Revelation that even though it looks like we are destroyed by the enemy, we, they can't destroy us because we live forever. They may take this earthly life. It may look like they're victorious, but ultimately they're not because they're the ones who will be destroyed forever. Not those who, who keep to the testimony of the Lamb who was slain. So we need protection from the enemies of the gospel, and we have that protection through the shepherd, the promised shepherd, Jesus, who will, as this, this promised seed, also destroy the evil one, who also, as the promised Messiah, rules and reigns over us. And so Jacob had hoped to see the fulfillment of these promises from, from Genesis 3 and Genesis 12, 15, 17, 18... He wanted to see these fulfilled in his lifetime, just like you do. And he waited in hope, in faith. And instead, he and his children were a part of God's progressive fulfillment of that promise, just like you are. This is a major milestone in the development of that covenant promise. And as people on this side of the cross, as opposed to the side that Jacob was on, we still wait for Jesus to defeat his enemies and to renew the earth. But And now we live as forgiven people who have been sanctified, who are being supported by an almighty God as we hold out that promise and hope to other people. So in some sense, we function like Jacob. We tell people what will happen, what God's going to do, that they might repent and believe. Why don't we pray? Father, it's easy for us to think, oh, this text doesn't concern us. It's about these other guys. That's not. For these were written for our instruction, for our encouragement, for our hope, for our repentance. Just as Paul says from 2 Timothy 3, that we're made wise for salvation through even these texts of the Old Testament. And we thank you that, that Jacob had his hope set not on himself, not on his sons, but of someone greater. And we too are tempted to place our hopes in the wrong place. In our children, in our government, in ourselves, 
instead of placing them in Jesus, who alone can deliver us from our sin and guilt, who alone can destroy the evil one, who alone can shepherd us and guide us. So Father, be at work in us that we might see the ways in which we've we've misplaced our hope, that we might repent and place it more fully in Jesus. Help us to see the the sins that we commit now that are plaguing those around us, that we might repent and be renewed in grace, that we might walk more faithfully with you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.